Hey, this is Tammy Rose of Transcendental Concord, and this episode is Chapter 12, Brute Neighbors, where Henry talks about his immediate neighbors, including a poet who visits him, and uh, a battle of the ants, which is very famous, uh, and the loons and other wildlife in his immediate area that he knows of to be his living neighbors. Give a listen. Chapter 12. Brute Neighbors. Sometimes I had a companion in my fishing who came through the village to my house from the other side of town, and the catching of the dinner was as much a social exercise as the eating of it. Hermit. I wonder what the world is doing now. I've not heard so much as a locust over the sweet fern these three hours. The pigeons are all asleep upon their roosts. No flutter from them. Was that a farmer's noon horn which sounded from beyond the woods just now? The hands are coming into boiled salt beef and cider and Indian bread. Why will men worry themselves so? He that does not eat need not work. I wonder how much they have reaped. Who would live there when a bo- where a body can never think for the barking of bows? And oh, the housekeeping, to keep bright the devil's doorknobs and scour his tubs this bright day. Better not keep a house. Say some hollow tree, and then for morning calls and dinner parties. Only a woodpecker tapping. Oh, they swarm. The sun is too warm there. They are born too far into life for me. I have water from the spring and a loaf of brown bread on the shelf. Hark! I hear a rustling of the leaves. Is it some ill-fed village hound yielding to the instinct of the chase? Or the lost pig, which is said to be in these woods whose tracks I saw after the rain? It comes on apace. My sumacs and sweet briars tremble. Eh, Mr. Poet, is it you? How do you like the world today? Poet. See these clouds, how they hang. That's the greatest thing I've seen today. There's nothing like it in old paintings, nothing like it in foreign lands, unless when we were off the coast of Spain. That's a true Mediterranean sky. I thought, as I have my living to get, and I have not eaten today, that I might go a-fishing. That's the true industry for poets. It is the only trade I have learned. Come, let's along. Hermit. I cannot resist. My brown bread will soon be gone. I will go with you gladly soon, but I am just concluding a serious meditation. I think that I am near the end of it. Leave me alone then for a while. But that we may not be delayed, you shall be digging the bait meanwhile. Angle worms are rarely to be met with in these parts, where the soil was never fattened with manure. The race is nearly extinct. The sport of digging the bait is nearly equal to that of catching the fish, when one's appetite is not too keen, and this you may have all to yourself today. I would advise you to set in the spade down yonder, among the ground nuts, where you see the john's wort waving. I think that I may warrant you one worm to every three sods you turn up, if you look well in among the roots of the grass, as if you were weeding. Or, 
if you choose to go farther, it will not be unwise, for I have found the increase of fair bait to be very nearly as the squares of the distances. Hermit alone. Let me see. Where was I? Methinks I was nearly in this frame of mind. The world lay about at this angle. Shall I go to heaven or a fishing? If I should soon bring this meditation to an end, would another so sweet occasion be likely to offer? I was as near being resolved into the essence of things as ever I was in my life. I fear my thoughts will not come back to me. If it would do any good, I would whistle for them. When they make us an offer, is it wise to say, we will think of it? My thoughts have left no track, and I cannot find the path again. What was it that I was thinking of? It's a very hazy day. I will just try these three sentences of Confuci that may fetch that state about again. I know not whether it was the dumps or a budding ecstasy. Mem, there never is but one opportunity of a kind. Poet. How now, hermit? Is it too soon? I've just got 13 whole ones, besides several which are imperfect or undersized, but they will do for the smaller fry. They do not cover up the hook so much. Those village worms are quite too large. A shiner may, may, may make a meal off one without finding the skewer. Hermit. Well, then, let's be off. Shall we to the Concord? There's good sport there if the water be not too high. Why do precisely these objects which we behold make a world? Why has man just these species of animals for his neighbors, as if nothing but a mouse could have filled this crevice? I suspect that Pilpay and company have put animals to their best use, for they are all be burden, in a sense, made to carry some portion of our thoughts. The mice which haunted my house were not the common ones, which are said to have been introduced into the country, but a wild native kind not found in the village. I sent one to a distinguished naturalist, and it interested him much. When I was building, one of these had its nest underneath the house, and before I had laid the second floor and swept out the shavings, would come out regularly at lunchtime and pick up the crumbs at my feet. It probably had never seen a man before, and it soon became quite familiar, and would run over my shoes and up my clothes. It could readily ascend the sides of my room by short impulses, like a squirrel, which it resembled in its motions. At length, as I leaned with my elbows on the bench one day, it ran out my clothes and along my sleeve and round and round the paper which held my dinner while I kept the ladder close and dodged and played at Bo Peep with it when at last I held, a pe I held still a piece of cheese between my thumb and finger. It came and nibbled it, sitting in my hand, and afterward cleaned its face and paws like a fly and walked away. A Phoebe soon built in my shed, and a robin for protection in a pine which grew against the house. In June, the partridge, Teatro umbilis, which is so shy a bird, let her brood past my windows from the woods in the rear to the front of my house, clucking and calling to them like a hen, and in all her behavior proving herself the hen of the woods. The young suddenly disperse on your approach at a signal from the mother, as if a whirlwind had swept them away, 
and they so exactly resemble the dried leaves and twigs that many a traveler has placed his foot in the midst of a brood and heard the whirr of the old bird as she flew off and her anxious calls and mewing or seen her trail her wings to attract his attention without suspecting their neighborhood. The parent will sometimes roll and spin round before you in such a dishabille that you cannot, for a few moments, detect what kind of creature it is. The young squat still and flat, often running their heads under a leaf, and mind only their mother's directions given from a distance. Nor will your approach make them run again and betray themselves. You may even tread on them or have your eyes on them for a minute without discovering them. I have held them in my open hand at such a time, and still their only care, obedient to their mother and their instinct, was to squat there without fear or trembling. So perfect is this instinct that once, when I had laid them on the leaves again, and one accidentally fell on its side, it was found with the rest in exactly the same position ten minutes afterwards. They are not callow like the young of most birds, but more perfectly developed and precocious even than the chickens. The remarkable adult yet innocent expression of their open and serene eyes is very memorable. All intelligence seems reflected in them. They suggest not merely the purity of infancy, but a wisdom clarified by experience. Such an eye was not born when the bird was, but is coeval with the, uh, the sky it reflects. The woods do not yield another such a gem. The traveler does not often look into such a limpid well. The ignorant or reckless sportsman often shoots the parent with such a time and leaves these innocents to fall a prey to some prowling beast or bird or gradually mingle with the decaying leaves which they so much resemble. It is said that when hatched by a hen they will directly disperse on some alarm and so are lost, for they never hear the mother's call which gathers them again. These were my hens and chickens. It is remarkable how many creatures live wild and free, though secret in the woods, and still sustain them in the neighborhood of towns, suspected by hunters only. How retired the otter manages to live here. He grows to be four feet long, as big as a small boy, perhaps without any human being getting a glimpse of him. I formerly saw the raccoon in the woods behind where my house is built, and probably still heard their winnering at night. Commonly, I rested an hour or two in the shade at noon after planting, and ate my lunch, and read a little by a spring, which was the source of a swamp and a, of a brook, oozing from under Brister's Hill, half a mile from my field. To approach the approach to this was through a succession of descending grassy hollows, full of young pitch pines, into a larger wood about the swamp. There, in a very secluded and shaded spot, under a spreading white pine, there was yet a f clean, firm sward to sit on. I had dug out the spring and made a well of clear, great water, where I could dip up a pailful without rolling it, roiling it, and thither I went for this purpose almost every day in midsummer, when the pond was warmest. Either, too, the woodcock led her brood to probe the mud for worms, flying but a foot above them down the bank, while they ran in a troop beneath, but at last, spying me, she would leave her young and circle round and round me, nearer and nearer, till within four or five feet, 
pretending broken wings and legs to attract my attention and get off her young, who would already have taken up their march with faint wiry peep single file through the swamp as she directed. Or I heard a peep of the young when I could not see the parent bird. There, too, the turtle dove sat over the spring or fluttered from bough to bough on the soft white pines over my head, or the red squirrel coursing down the nearest bough was particularly familiar and inquisitive. You only need sit still long enough in some attractive spot in the woods that all the, its inhabitants may exhibit themselves to you by turns. I was witness to events of a less peaceful character. One day I went out to my wood pile, or rather my pile of stumps. <laughs> I observed two large ants, the one red, the other much larger, nearly half an inch long, and black, fiercely contending with one another. Having once got hold, they never let go, but struggled and wrestled and rolled on the chips incessantly. Looking farther, I was surprised to find that the chips were covered with such combatants that it was not a duellum, but a bellum, a war between two races of ants, the red always pitted against the black, and frequently two reds to one black. The legions of these myrmid myrmidons covered all the hills and vales in my wood yard and the ground was already strewn with the dead and dying both red and black it was the only battle which i had ever witnessed the only battlefield i had ever trod while the battle was raging internecine war the red republicans on the one hand and the black imperialists on the other on every side they were engaged in deadly combat yet without the noise that i could hear and human soldiers never fought so resolutely. I watched a couple that they were fast locked in each other's embraces in a little sunny valley amid the chips, now at noonday prepared to fight till the sun went down or life went out. The smaller red champion had fastened himself like a vice to his adversary's front, and through all the tumblings on that field, never for an instant ceased to gnaw at one of his feelers near the root, having already caused the other to go by the board, while the stronger black one dashed him from side to side, and as I saw on looking nearer, had already divested him of several of his members. They fought with more pertinacity than bulldogs, neither manifested the least disposition to retreat. It was evident that their battle cry was, conquer or die. In the meanwhile, there came along a single red ant on this hillside of this valley, evidently full of excitement, who either had dispatched his foe or had not yet taken part in the battle, probably the latter, for he had not lost none of his limbs, whose mother had charged him to return with his shield or upon it. Oh. Or perchance he was some Achilles who had nourished his wrath apart and now come to avenge or rescue his Patroclus. He saw his unequal combat from afar, for the blacks were nearly twice the size of the red. He drew near with rapid pace till he stood on his guard within half an inch of the combatants. Then watching his opportunity, he sprang upon the black warrior and commenced his operations near the foot of his right foreleg leaving the foe to select among its own members. And so there were three united for life, as if a new kind of attraction had been invented, which put all other locks and cements to shame. I should not have wandered by this time to find that they 
had their respective musical bands stationed on some eminent ship and playing their national airs the while to excite the slow and cheer the dying combatants. I was myself excited, somewhat, even as if they had been men. The more you think of it, the less the difference. And certainly there is not the fight recorded from conquered history, at least, if in the history of America, that will bear a moment's comparison with this, whether for the numbers engaged in it or for the patriotism and heroism displayed. For numbers and for carnage, it was in Austerlitz or Dresden. Conquered fight! Two killed on the Patriots' side, and Luther Blanchard wounded. Why, here every ant was a buttrick. Fire, for God's sake, fire! And thousands shared the fate of Davis and Hosmer. There was not one hireling here. I have no doubt that it was a principle they fought for, as much as our ancestors, and not to avoid a three-penny tax on their tea. And the result of this battle will be as important and memorable to those whom it concerns as those of the Battle of Bunker Hill, at least. I took up the chip on which the three I have particularly described were struggling, carried it into my house, and placed it under a tumbler on my windowsill in order to see the issue. Holding a microscope to the first-mentioned red ant, I saw that, though he was assiduously gnawing at the near foreleg of his enemy, having severed his remaining feeler, his own breast was all torn away, exposing what vitals he had there to the jaws of the black warrior, whose breastplate was apparently too thick for him to pierce, and the dark carbuncles of the sufferer's eyes shone with ferocity such a war only could excite. They struggled half an hour longer under the tumble, under the tumbler, and when I looked again, the black soldier had severed the heads of his foes from their bodies, and the still living heads were hanging on either side of him like ghastly trophies in his saddle bow, still apparently as firmly fastened as ever, and he was endeavoring with feeble struggles, being without feelers and with only the remnant of a leg, and I know not how many other wounds to divest himself of them, which at length, after half an hour more, he accomplished. I raised the glass, and he went off over the window sill in that crippled state. Whether he finally survived that combat and spent the remainder of his days in some hotel des Invalides, I do not know, but thought that his industry would not be worth much thereafter. I never learned which party was victorious, nor the cause of the war, but I felt for the rest of the day as if I had my feelings excited and harrowed by witnessing the struggle, the ferocity and carnage of a human battle before my door. Kirby and Spence tell us that the battles of ants have long been celebrated and the date of them recorded, though they say Huber is the only modern author who appears to have witnessed them. Aeneas Silvius, say they, after giving a very circumstantial account of one contested with great obstinacy by a great and small species on the trunk of a pear tree, adds that this auction was this action was fought in the pontificate of Eugenius the Fourth in the presence of Nicholas Pisserinius, an eminent lawyer, who related the whole history of the battle with the greatest fidelity. A similar engagement between great and small ants is recorded by Oeolus Magnus, in which the small ones, being victorious, are said to have buried the bodies of their own soldiers, 
but left those of their giant enemies a prey to the birds. This event happened previously to the expulsion of the tyrant Christian II from Sweden. The battle which I witnessed took place in the presidency of Polk, five years before the passage of Webster's Fugitive Slave Bill. Many a village bows fit only to course and a mud turtle in a victualling cellar, a victualling cellar, sported his heavy quarters in the woods without the knowledge of his master, of his master, and ineffect, ineffectually smelled at old fox burrows and woodchuck holes, led perchance by some slight cur which nimbly threaded the wood and might still inspire a natural terror in its denizens, now far behind his guide, barking like a canine bull toward some small squirrel which had treed itself for scrutiny, and then, then cantering off, bending the bushes with his weight, imagining that he is on the track of some stray member of the gerbil family. Once I was surprised to see a cat walking along the stony shore of the pond, for they rarely wander so far from home. The surprise was mutual. Nevertheless, the most domestic cat, which has lain on a rug all her days, appears quite at home in the woods, and by her sly and stealthy behavior, proves herself more native there than the regular inhabitants. Once, when burying, I met with a cat with young kittens in the woods, quite wild, and they all, like their mother, had their backs up and were fiercely spitting at me. A few years before I lived in the woods, there was what was called a winged cat in one of the farmhouses in Lincoln, nearest the pond, Mr. Gillian Baker's. When I called to see her in June 1842, she was gone a-hunting in the woods, as was her wont. I'm not sure whether it was male or female, and so used the more common pronoun, but her mistress told me that she came into her neighborhood a little more than a year before, in April, and was finally taken into her house that she was of a dark brownish-gray color with a white spot on her throat and white feet and had a large, large bushy tail like a fox that in the winter the fur grew thick and flattened out along her sides, forming stripes ten or twelve inches long by two and a half wide and under her chin like a muff, the upper side loose, the under matted like felt, and in the spring these appendages dropped off. They gave me a pair of her wings, which I keep still. There is no appearance of a membrane about them. Some thought it was part flying squirrel or other wild animal, which is not impossible. For, according to naturalists, prolific hybrids have been produced by the union of the marten and domestic cat. This would have been the right kind of cat for me to keep, if I had kept any. For why should not a poet's cat, why should a why should not a poet's cat be as winged as well as his horse? In the fall, the loon, Coimbus Galicius, came as usual to molt and bathe in the pond, making the woods ring with his wild laughter before I had risen. At rumor of his arrival at the mill dam, sportsmen are on the alert, in gigs and on foot, two by two and three by three, with patent rifles and conical balls and spyglasses. They come rustling through the woods like autumn leaves, at least ten men to one loon. Some station themselves on the side of the pond, some on that, for the poor bird cannot be omnipresent. If he dive here, he must come up there. 
But now the kind October wind rises, rustling the leaves and rippling the surface of the water, so that no loon can be heard or seen, though his foes sweep the pond with spyglasses and make the woods resound with their discharges. The waves generously rise and dash angrily, taking sides with all waterfowl, and our sportsmen must beat a retreat to town and stop and shop and unfinished jobs. But they were often too successful. When I went to get a pail of water early in the morning, I frequently saw this stately bird sailing out of my cove within a few rods. If I endeavored to overtake him in a boat in order to see how he would maneuver, he would dive and be completely lost so that I did not discover him again, sometimes until the latter part of the day. But I was more than a match for him on the surface. He commonly went off in a rain. As I was paddling along the north shore one very calm October afternoon, for such days especially they settle on to the lakes, like milkweed down, having looked in vain over the, pot, over the pond for a loon, suddenly one, sailing out from the shore towards the middle a few rods in front of me, set up his wild laugh and betrayed himself. I pursued with a paddle and he dived, but when he came up I was nearer than before. He dived again, but I miscalculated the direction he would take, and we were fifty rods apart when he came to the surface this time, for I had helped to widen the interval, and again he laughed long and loud and with more reason than before. He maneuvered so cunningly that I could not get within a half a dozen rods of him. Each time when he came to the surface, turning his head this way and that, he coolly surveyed the water and the land, and apparently chose his course so that he might come up where there was the widest expanse of water and at the greatest distance from the boat. It was surprising how quickly he made up his mind and put his resolve into execution. He led me at once to the widest part of the pond and could not be driven from it. When he was thinking one thing in his brain, I was endeavoring to divine his thoughts in mine. It was a pretty game, played on the smooth surface of the pond, a man against a loon. Suddenly your adversary's checker disappears beneath the board, and the problem is to place yours nearest to where he will appear again. Sometimes he would come up unexpectedly on the opposite side of me, having apparently passed directly under the boat. So long-winded was he, and so unweariable, that when he had swum furthest he would immediately plunge again. Nevertheless, and then no wit could divine where in the deep pond beneath the smooth surface he might be speeding his way like a fish, for he had time and ability to visit the bottom of the pond in its deepest part. It is said that loons have been caught in New York lakes, 80 feet beneath the surface, with hooks set for trout, though Walden is deeper than that. How surprised must the fishes be to see this ungainly visitor from another sphere speeding his way amid their schools? Yet he appeared to know his course as surely underwater as on the surface, and swam much faster there. Once or twice I saw a ripple where he approached the surface, just put his head out to reconnoiter, and instantly dived again. I found that this was as well for me to rest my oars and wait his re reappearing as to endeavor to calculate where he would rise. For again and again, when I was straining my eyes over the surface one way, I would suddenly be startled by his unearthly laugh behind me. 
But why, after displaying so much cunning, did he invariably betray himself the moment he came up by that loud laugh? Did not his white breast enough betray him? He was indeed a silly loon, I thought. I could commonly hear the splash of water when he came up, and so also detected him. But after an hour he seemed as fresh as ever, dived as willingly, and swam yet farther than at first. It was surprising to see how serenely he sailed off with unruffled breast when he came to the surface, doing all the work with his webbed feet beneath. His usual note was this demonic laughter, yet somewhat like that of a waterfowl, but occasionally when he had balked me most successfully and come up a long way off, he uttered a long-drawn, unearthly howl, probably more like that of a wolf than any bird, when it, as when a beast puts his muzzle to the ground and deliberately howls. This was his looning, perhaps the wildest sound that is ever heard here, making the woods ring far and wide. I concluded that he laughed in derision of my efforts, confident of his own resources. Though the sky was by this time overcast, the pond was so smooth that I could see where he broke the surface when I did not hear him. His white breast, the stillness of the air, and the smoothness of the water were all against him. At length, having come up fifty rods off, he uttered one of those prolonged howls, as if calling on the god of loons to aid him, and immediately there came a wind from the east and rippled the surface and filled the whole air with misty rain. And I was impressed as if it were the prayer of the loon answered, and his god was angry with me. And so I left him disappearing far away on the tumultuous surface. For hours in fall days, I watched the ducks cunningly tack and veer and hold the middle of the pond, far from the sportsmen, tricks which they have less need to practice in Louisiana bayous. When compelled to rise, they would sometimes circle round and round and over the pond at a considerable height, from which they could easily see to other ponds and the river, like black motes in the sky, and when I thought they had gone off thither long since, they would settle down by a slanting flight of a quarter of a mile on to a distant part which was left free. But what besides safety they got by sailing in the middle of Walden, I do not know, unless they love its water for the same reason that I do. Hey, so uh, this is Tammy Rose of Transcendental Concord. Um, I've just read chapter 12 uh, called Brute Neighbors, uh, which is an interesting title um, for him to describe uh, the contents of this chapter because I feel like he's describing ants and loons and cats and otters, um, you know, which... So I think he he's using an interesting... Uh, form of the word brute. Um, I would, I personally would consider them gentle um, and small and cute. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I um, he, I, so I, I believe he is being ironic as he often is. And there are some actually very um, funny passages here. Um, I had never realized that he had kind of written a play, uh, 
you know, like he's written poetry. Um, he's famous for writing all of this. Um, like he's written, Henry David Thoreau writes um, essays on nature and travel. And um, I think I've said before, he uses the first person, um, but the, you know, he'll use the word I or me um, as if he's talking about himself. But I would say that, um, you know, be a little skeptical of Henry Thoreau as narrator, right? Because he's sort of using a character um, and who's an unreliable narrator um, and is not necessarily Thoreau, but sometimes a um, like an exaggerated version of the guy who lived at Walden or whatever. Um, and he uses, uh, he opens this chapter. Um, so every time you hear me say hermit or poet, um, I didn't understand what he was doing at the beginning, but it, he's kind of doing a dialogue between them. Um, and I, and I think this could be interpreted a couple of ways. He could be talking to himself, right? Like sometimes I'm a hermit, sometimes I'm a poet, whatever. Um, but he also had a friend, um, Ellery Channing, um, who was a poet and who is not well known today. Um, I, I don't want to speak for how his poetry was received in his day. Um, but I will say that he wasn't necessarily famous like Emerson was, um, and he married, I'm going to get this wrong, he married into, well, I'll just say he married into Margaret Fuller's family. Um, I think it's like her, I want to say her sister, and I, I could be getting this wrong. He married, anyway, he, but he did marry into her family, um, and he was not a good provider. Ellery Channing was um, one of those, like he reminds me of like, a guy from the sixties who wants to be a hippie, um, you know, who kind of got sucked into the whole idea of marriage and suddenly there were babies and he was expected to have a job. And I feel like he kind of, um, you know, went out for cigarettes one day and didn't kind of come back. Um, so he did end up kind of abandoning his family and, you know, not really, um, he was persona non grata, in Concord for a little while. Um, I believe Thomas Wentworth Higginson, I think it was him, um, came and helped to, um, adopt one of the kids. And there's, there's a whole story behind that. And I need to do, um, better research before I present that, but I will tell you, it's a really interesting, um, story to follow, um, Ellery Channing and his life. Um, I believe that Victor Curran has written an article in Discover Concord, um, that, gives all of the facts. So that's a good um, place to research. So yeah, so Ellery Channing was kind of this like hippie poet, ne'er-do-well, you know, guy who left his family when it wasn't really, um, well, not that it's ever been in vogue <laughs> to leave your family, but he, uh, he, he kind of left, he abandoned them economically at a time when um, that was not done um, but he went to go hang out with Henry at Walden. So it is entirely likely, and here's my point, it is entirely likely that when Henry is saying that he's having a dialogue with a quote-unquote poet, um, that he could be talking to Ellery. And they were like, hey, you want to go fishing today? And they're like, yeah, sure. 
And Henry's like, hey, why don't you, like, go dig some worms? And Ellery's like, sure. And he goes off. Um, <laughs> which is, which is funny also that he, he kind of just drops that at one point, you know, cause it's like, it's the hermit. Then the hermit is like doing this soliloquy to himself when he does like hermit alone. Let me see. Where was I? Methinks I was nearly in this frame of mind, you know, and, um, and then he kind of goes into a longer, a longer thing. Um, at the last, the last piece of the play is hermit. When he says, well, then let's be off. Shall we go to the Concord, meaning the Concord River? Um, there's good sport there if the water be not too high. Um, and of course, the water is very high in April. Um, and I'm recording this actually on the first day of May. Um, and there's that line um, when about the rude bridge that arced the flood um, of Emerson's. Um, and that line always... Um, is one of those really great details of poetry because uh, we've just celebrated April 19th um, and it's commemorating April 19th, 1775, um, when there was a shot heard around the world in all of Lexington and Concord. Um, they get, you know, into like their, their, it's, this is their day, right? Every single year, there are all these reenactors, they do a parade, you know, this is the birthplace of American liberty. This is when um, they, the, the farmers, you know, picked up guns and nobody knows who fired the first shot, but, you know, like don't fire till you see the whites of their eyes. That was literally from that battle. Um, and whatever, the fighting started. And that was how, uh, you know, America, and so when Henry talks about the patriotism and the heroism of the ants. Like he's very much aware that all of Concord is all about um, this legend and everybody has grown up with this legend. Um, Henry was born in 1817 and I was just thinking about this. Um, so, you know, he, he, when he was a kid, the old men of the town were still alive from that day. Right. If they were like 20 in 1775 or 25 in 1775, um, they would be like 75 um, when Henry was seven. You know, I, and I just kind of imagine him and I, I know his family moved to Boston at one point. Um, but, you know, just being a, a kid of Concord, you walk around and you know that you have like this elder presence and they're going to tell you every detail and they're like so-and-so got killed and this is why I have a limp and you know here this is the um it's like the founding story um this is the the narrative that everybody is living with um in Concord and it's even though it's history it's like it's still there and I feel like that's kind of the um the way that history echoes in Concord because cause Henry grew up in that era. And, you know, if you were, were to go to, to Concord today, you know, you can visit, you know, this is, this is the bridge. This is 1775. And it's not exactly the same bridge. They built it like five times over again because um, the bridge keeps getting knocked out because of the flood, you know. Um, and, it, but, but also you get to visit Concord and you hear about the 1840s. So, you know, there are at least three time periods in Concord at any one time, 1775, the 1840s, and 
present, right? Like whatever time we are in now. Um, but it kind of extends beyond that because you're thinking about if you walk in the woods, you think about the time even before, um, you know, the, the settlers came and you can think about Native Americans, but you can also think about, you know, what is what is nature when it exists without the influence of humans. Um, and you can go back kind of like indefinitely into the past, but also indefinitely into the future because um, Concord has a lot of parks and a lot, or a lot, like, I wouldn't even call them parks. I would just say um, tracts of lands that are set aside um, that will be prevented from being developed. Um, so you know that you can visit, um, you know, trails and forests and woods and, and areas that, you know, while they have also been never developed, they're not going to be developed into the future. So you can come back and bring your grandkids and they can walk in your same steps and they will, um, and the, the, that immediate area will have not changed. So there's a piece, I've been thinking a lot about this. So there's a piece of Concord about, that's about history. And then it's also about timelessness. Um, and so let's, so getting back to the chapter, um, I love that Henry sort of has the same sense where, you know, and he's, he, he calls himself a hermit, even though the town is literally like a mile away. And apparently he says that he travels to Brister's Spring, which is a quarter of a mile away from him. Um, and as he describes it, he talks about, you're know, going through all these pitch pines and whatever. Um, sadly, that, that uh, journey that he's describing, part of it is lost um, because there's a major highway, <laughs> Route 2, in between his house and Walden um, and Brister's Spring, which is just on the other side of Route 2. Um, so there's a part of me that's like... <laughs> He's talking about trees that have been um, taken and, you know, for modernization. So this is what I mean by, you know, when you walk through a tract of land that has been set aside specifically not to be developed, um, if they decide to build, you know, another highway, which they probably won't or whatever, um, you know, hopefully they, there are parts that, parts of land which are sacrosanct. And as I said, I, I live in a few towns over Waltham. And every time a piece of land gets designated um, belonging to the town, it gets designated for, you know, quote unquote, educational purposes. Um, and as I might have complained to you about before, um, they have torn down a large piece of my local forest at the end of my street um, to build a high school. And there's another farmland area that again has just been designated for educational purposes which all of the residents are like well I wonder what that means it's going to be turned into a football field or um, something with lights and lots of noise and you know or worse comes to worse a parking lot so um, things like that don't really happen in Concord because they they treasure their land and their history. Um, but also, frankly, economically, they are of a different um, stature and they can afford to set aside land um, and not have to use up every bit of it. 
um, or sell it or whatever. Um, I love that. Uh, okay, back to the chapter. I love that he describes um, the mouse, the mice as haunting his house. Um, and that he notices the difference between um, the kind that are um, the common ones, which are said to have been introduced into the country, probably on ships or something, um, but a wild native kind not found in the village. Um, and I think that that's, I, I, I don't know, I just, I think it's, I think it's funny that he, he can describe the difference in behavior between the mice that he probably has in his house or his family's house, um, who know enough to be afraid of humans. And then he talks about this one who's never seen a human, you know, and has no idea what to do and just like, you know, runs around and like eats his, um, you know, helps him eat his lunch. Um, he like the, the mice, the mouse dodges and played at Bo Peep. I think that means like peekaboo um, with it. And when I last held still a piece of cheese between my thumb and finger, it came and nibbled it sitting in my hand and afterward cleaned its face and paws like a fly and walked away. Like this is, this is, uh, you know, Thoreau being St. Francis, um, you know, being like the snow white, you know, where all of the animals come and, you know, he uh, he figures out not quite how to tame them, but how to interact with them, um, because this is also Thoreau as a hermit who does not interact with people from town and allows himself to get bored and to really pay attention to the animals and even the ants, you know. Um, he talks about a Phoebe and uh, he talks about a partridge and he, he keeps bringing up this idea of um, the mother hen um, wanting to distract um, from her babies by, you know, limping or like pretending it has a broken wing or something. And it's like, take me instead of the babies, which is um, kind of a, you know, <laughs> which is like, it's this great psychological thing that animals do and he's noticing this behavior um I think at a time when the only people who really cared to notice that kind of behavior were like this I think he's doing it before even like the naturalists at Harvard really um but he's writing it down and he's like you know he and throughout this chapter he he keeps comparing animal behavior to human like behavior or he's not necessarily comparing them to humans, because I feel like, you know, you need to give each species their own respect. And for the partridge, he's like, he's, he's just noticed, like, he's just noticing how intelligent they are. Um, and at one point, he mentions that he has handed over, um, I think, a, a specimen or something to a prominent biologist. Um, he did have a relationship with, um, the, there's a gentleman at Harvard and I'm forgetting his name. Um, and he, uh, was the preeminent, uh, naturalist and behavior or naturalist, um, at Harvard. And he, um, commissioned, 
you know, all sorts of, like he had the money, he had the power. Um, one of the things he did was commissioned um, a set of photographs to be taken of um, African-American enslaved people. Agassiz, his name is Louis Agassiz. Um, and he commissioned a series of African-American enslaved people to be taken um, in the nude. And this is the very famous picture of um, the older man who had been whipped so many times that you can see all of the scars on his back. Um, and it's a really prominent picture and people are fighting right now, um, for his, um, uh, his, I believe like the great grand parent, great grandkids or great, great, great. I'm not, I'm not sure how many greats that is, um, to get some kind of recognition or something because that those pictures have been used far and wide. Um, and they were, the subjects were not named, you know? So Henry is in the time of, you know, the idea of the American idea of classifying everything. And, you know, this is even the, the beginning of like eugenics, right? Like this is the shape of a human head and this is a criminal and this is not a criminal, right? These are desirable traits and here are undesirable traits. This is why one race is better than another because they have more desirable traits and blah, blah, blah. All of that um, kind of classification because if you can classify the world around you, like that gives you power and knowledge and you're, cre you're inherently creating the rules of the game um, by being able to um, put all of these things into categories of your own design and you can decide what are valuable traits and what are not. So anyway, not to, not to get off on that whole um, um, tangent, as I always do. I'm sorry. Or maybe that's why you're listening. Um, I, I know that that's one of the reasons I do this because I can go off on tangents um, and talk about a lot of different um, things in a similar way that I believe Thoreau does. Um, let me, all right, so going from the hens, uh, getting into, yeah, right, so, so Brister's Hill, I just wanted to quote the section. Um, I formerly saw the raccoon in the woods behind where my house is built and probably still heard their wintering at night. I think that's a great word, wintering. Uh, commonly, I rested an hour or two in the shade at noon after planting and ate my lunch and read a little by a spring, which was the source of a swamp and of a brook oozing from under Brister's Hill, half a mile from my field. Again, like across Route 2. The approach to this was through a succession of descending grassy hollows full of young pitch pines into a larger wood about the swamp. Um, and so that's the that's the section that is gone. There, in a very secluded and shaded spot, under a spreading white pine, there was yet a clean, firm sward. I don't know what that word is to sit on. I had dug out the spring and made a well of clear gray water. So thank you, Henry, for digging that out. Um, where I could dip a pailful without roiling it. Um, and thither I went for this purpose almost every day in midsummer when the pond was warmest. So he's going because the pond is just too hot, which is funny. Um, I'm a, so I'm a swimmer. I think I've said that before. 
Um, and I've heard many people say that sometimes it's too hot to swim, but I, you know, I, I, um, I need, you know, I've been trying to measure the temperature, um, or there are people who measure it. And I noticed that I can't get into it if it's under 65. That's sort of my limit. And it's sort of the lower limit of a lot of other people. Um, but I have yet to step into it when it's too hot to swim. Um, but I, there are plenty of people who do it for exercise and, you know, their, their bodies get, you know, their bodies are already, uh, you know, engines themselves. So it's hard to be in a, a water that is hotter than you are. Um, but I, I think, no, I think the high, the hottest it's ever gotten, um, is maybe the early, the eighties, something like that. I think that's the, um, that's the high end I've heard. Um, so I love the section where he's talking about, I was a witness to events of a less peaceful character. And he talks about this giant war, which is really interesting of the, the ants, um, you know, the red ants versus the black ants and the black ants are huge. Um, one of my favorite resources. So if you're interested in researching all of the references, um, I would, I would send you to digitalthorough.org. Um, which is a really great crowdsourced website. Um, and they have commentary on all of the chapters. Um, but here there are more references than I can even keep up with. Um, so he talks about Achilles. He talks about, um, I think you heard me, I laughed a little bit, or like I, I noticed how poignant it was um, when he said that there was um, a, an ant that had been encouraged by his mother to either come back with his shield or on top of it. Um, so I've studied like ancient Greek and Latin and all of that. So I've heard that phrase before. Um, and here it says that it's um, like a, a Spartan um, from the, you know, the land of Sparta um, in ancient Greece. And it's sort of a, a legend um, that uh, from Plutarch actually. Um, that that's what the, the mothers said to their sons, that you, you can't desert, that you either have to come back with your shield or, you know, dead, essentially, um, upon your shield. Um, so that whole, that whole section, and it's a very extended section, um, where he just describes what that war is like um, between the red and the black ants, and he's paying attention. So he knows that they're like tearing off each other's legs. And he says that like the red ant, you know, it's, it's guts were exposed and like all of these, um, um, how could I put it? All of these details that I think you wouldn't really notice unless you were, um, not, not quite a hermit, but you're, you're in nature and you're allowing yourself to, um, experience everything and you're paying attention to even the smallest detail so to notice that there's a giant war happening right beneath your feet you know every time I walk around Walden I'm always wondering what what the different worlds are that you know we don't have the scale to really be privy to um, and so that's what he's doing here like this is this is what this is what you can discover if you notice or if you, and if you keep your, your mind open to noticing things. 
Um, you know, but he's, he's comparing the, um, the fight of the ants to the revolution that happened in Concord, you know, the Concord fight. Um, and thousands shared the fate of Davis and Hosmer. So those are Concord family names. Um, and Bunker Hill, uh, you know, I, I, I feel bad for these ants. You know, I just, I just can't believe it. Um, that he's, he turns it into this whole long, um, thing. Cause I, I think he's, you know, he's, he's fascinated by these, by this otherworldly thing. It, it reminds me of, um, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to remember this. Uh, there is, right. So like David and Goliath, right. Um, but there's also the, the Lilliputians, what's the name of that book? Um, you know, where, where somebody goes and he suddenly, he's the giant in the land of the Lilliputians and then he goes somewhere else and he's the smallest one there. Um, so I feel like that's, that's also another, um, very cool, uh, thing that Henry's sort of playing with. Um, and then he mentions cats and he mentions, um, um, you know, the, the, so he mentions cats. He says that he didn't keep one, although there had been a cat in his household when he was living with his mother and sisters. Um, there's a, a quote from his journal about how the cat had been outside in the snow and didn't come back for a day or two. But when the cat came back, um, the cat smelled like hay. <laughs> and he says they all passed the cat around because the cat like had such a lovely smell of hay and you knew that the cat was like hanging out in a barn. Um, I love that he's describing also like the winged cat, um, which is really hard to imagine, but you know, it's, he he does his best to include all of the all of the uh, details and and he says that he has like the appendages that had dropped off the wings um so i wonder what that is i don't think those have lasted um but you know he had a bunch of different nature specimens and stuff um and the last section is really one of my favorite sections where he's talking about being on um Walden in his rowboat and playing with the loon or he's he's not playing he's he's trying to hunt them um and he mentions at one point like where he hears the the hunter's um crack of a gun um which caused me to shudder because they like they do allow hunting in Concord and even though I'm a hiker and I've been on lots of the trails you know knock on wood I have never seen um, a hunter and I've never seen anybody with a gun. Thank God. Um, so, um, I, I believe that we're just in different areas. I like, I, I like, I, I don't, I don't know. This is, and this is one of those things where it's like, I should, I should learn better about when hunting season is and how to make sure that I am seen and not mistaken for a deer or something. Um, Concord is overrun by deer. Um, as a matter of fact, like the wildflower association of Concord is, um, on the side of the hunters, um, because the deer have eaten, 
um, most of like the wildflower species, something like that. You know, like there are people who say that it's it's due to climate change, blah, blah, blah. Um, Some of that is true, but I believe it's deer (laughs) that have actually um, eaten more of the, like they're more to blame for losing all of the, um, the flowers. Um, so anyway, but he has this whole, so Henry talks about this whole section about, um, the demonic laughter of the waterfowl of this loon. And if you've ever seen, if you've ever seen loons and I've been a swimmer, so I've, and I am happy to report that I have encountered loons. Um, they come very close to me when I'm swimming, especially if I'm like, I'm a quiet kind of swimmer. Um, so I feel like I've been easily within like 10 feet of them and then suddenly they dart beneath the surface and I don't know how long they can hold their breath but it's much longer than me and I look around for them and I do not see them pop up back up and so I I I have done exactly what he's what he's saying that he's doing where he's like trying to get them um and I love that but I love at the end where the loon at one point like evokes the gods of the loon and, you know, there's a wind. So Henry, the human, is thwarted. You know, even though he wasn't really hunting him, he was um, teasing him, you know, or interacting with him in a way that uh, is highly discouraged nowadays. Um, like, even the very fact that he took the ants, you know, into his cabin and then, like, threw, threw the victor out the window, you know, like he's interfering with nature and a little bit beyond where he should be proud, I think, you know, like that really shouldn't be a thing that you brag about. Um, but still, I'm, I'm very glad that the, the loon um, gets the last laugh, I guess. Um, and I really love that in the end, like his, his final line is like, um, you know, I don't, I don't know why. I don't know why they hang out in Walden um, unless they love its water for the same reason that I do, you know, because I, um, again, like he's not, he's not directly comparing um, animals to humans, but he is resonating with the animals and allowing them the measure of respect that maybe they, maybe they love nature because nature is beautiful too. And animals have this um, the capacity for respecting and honoring nature and hanging out at Walden just because it's beautiful and not just because they find it, um, a good place for safety and for all of the, you know, whatever rational facts that biologists want to attribute to them or, you know, even, even the Darwinian people who were like, well, you know, they're, they're doing it because it's a hard fact about nature that they have to be there, blah, blah, blah. Um, and Henry is like, yeah, you know, and, and again, like, it's not, it's not comparison as much as he's realizing that these are his neighbors, you know, and they're, they're beings. Um, you know, a whole, a whole book could be written, and I'm sure there have been books on him being a vegetarian. And in fact, I think his biography, or I know his biography was written by Henry Salt, who handed it to Mahatma Gandhi at one point. Um, and Gandhi got into vegetarianism and, you know, and also Henry Salt was a vegetarian. 
And there's this whole like line of reasoning about being a vegetarian because you don't want to dishonor animals. Um, Henry didn't really write about that necessarily, but he, at least in this chapter, he's definitely, um, you know, appreciating the depths of the psychology and the, the beings that share the world with him. Thank you for listening. Yeah. So thanks again for listening. This is Tammy Rose of Transcendental Concord. And you can find us on the web at transcendentalconcord.com or .org. Um, we have a group on Facebook called Transcendental Concord. There is also a YouTube series called Concord Days, where I interview and talk to and have conversations with tour guides and educators and authors um, all about Concord and their writers and the um, the people in the community supporting history and writing and nature. Um, and we also have a book group um, that's called Conversations with 19th Century Women Authors. Um, so get in touch on Facebook or on the website transcendentalconcord.com. Thanks and see you next time.